You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Ruth. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. God is in control, but it doesn't always feel like it. I think that's the main theme of this great book called Ruth. God is always in control. He always has a plan, as we even see here in chapter 4, God working this together for his purpose. He always has a plan. He's always in control, but it doesn't always feel like it. And the story of Ruth is really a series of setbacks. Chapter 1, we found Elimelech and his family, Naomi and their sons, leaving Bethlehem because of the famine that was in the land. And they went to Moab. And then it was there that Elimelech died, leaving Naomi a widow with two sons. Those two sons married, and then they died. Malon and Kilion, sickly and pining. They fulfilled their names, their heritage. They died at young ages, leaving Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah widows with no children. And it kind of leaves us in that place in chapter 1 of of wondering what exactly is God doing here. And we see the dark clouds of providence. and, And many of you have experienced that. You've experienced difficulties and trials and troubles and hardships. And you understand the dark clouds of providence that can creep into your life. And you wonder, God, what are you doing? And we wondered, God, what are you doing? And then as we transitioned into chapter 2... Naomi is filled with hope because Boaz appears on the scene as a a possible husband, a, a possible kinsman, redeemer for Ruth. But he doesn't pursue her. He provides for her. He helps her. He protects her. But he doesn't really pursue her. And so we're kind of left wondering, okay, Lord, what are you doing here? And maybe you're in that place in life where where you see a glimmer of hope where you see some silver lining around these dark clouds and you, and you think, okay, God, what's going on? And, and maybe you've, you've had your hopes sort of lifted and then the bottom has fallen out of everything. Things have been stripped away and you, you continue to wonder, God, what are you doing? Knowing that God is in control but sensing and feeling that it just doesn't seem that way. And then in chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth make a bold move. In the middle of the night, Ruth essentially tells Boaz that she wants him to take her as his wife. We left off there in chapter 3. Boaz is excited to do so. You can imagine, he was an older man. He didn't think Ruth would be interested in him at all. But he finds out that she is. And the, the romance is heightened. The, the, the story is coming to its climax. But wait, there's once again a setback. Because there's another man who, according to Hebrew custom, has prior claim. He's a closer relative. And so once again, hope is sort of stripped away. What seemingly was an answer to prayer is not going to happen the way that they thought it would. And Boaz, who is a man of amazing character, will not proceed without giving this man, the closer relative, his lawful opportunity. And that's where we left off in chapter 4. We we left off at the end there of chapter 3 with this question. How is this going to work? Is God really able to bring all of this together? 
Is God going to make this work out for Naomi and Ruth's good and for his glory? And oftentimes when you're in the midst of difficulty and when you're in the midst of hardships, well-meaning Christians will, will quote Romans 8.28 as if it's some kind of fix-all, right? You know the verse. For God will work everything out for your good in his glory. To those that are called according to his purposes, right? God will work it all out for your good, for his glory. And people kind of throw that verse out there. They, they kind of use it as if it should just be an immediate fix for your problem. And that you ought to just walk away just hopping and skipping and praising God. And just thinking, oh yes, it is going to all work out together for the good. And yet... Your situation doesn't change. And that's why I want you guys to to know this morning that God is in control, but it doesn't always feel like it. And much of what transpires here in our story to prove that God was always in control and that he was working these details out for his glory, much of these details would have been unknown to Naomi, to Ruth, and to Boaz. Much of these things were details that they would have never known in their lifetime, as we'll look at this morning. And there are things that God is doing, you guys, in your life that you'll never know why. You'll never know the purpose. You'll never understand the reason behind it. But God never makes mistakes. Nothing is happening in your life that does not have a purpose. It says, now Boaz went up, To the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. So here's Boaz. We left him with Ruth there at the threshing floor in the middle of the night. Well, he wastes no time. He he wants to pursue Ruth. He he wants to have her as his wife. He wants to perform the duty of being the kinsman, of redeeming not only Ruth but Naomi, of purchasing this land that Naomi owned to provide for them, to sustain them. And in so doing, he would also be bringing Ruth in as his wife. But there's this other man, a nearer relative, and Ruth being, or Boaz being the man of character that he is, He refuses to just skip the details. He wants to do everything with integrity. And so he goes to the city gate. This would have been the place of of commerce. This would have been the place of meeting. It was a busy place in the morning. In in those times, the, the cities were surrounded with walls to protect them from enemies, especially in this time. You remember it was the time of the judges. You remember as you read in the book of Judges that Israel was constantly being attacked from enemy nations. That they were constantly under the thumb of some nearby neighbor who would rob them and steal from them and put them into slavery. And so this city, Bethlehem, would have been surrounded by walls. It would have had gates around the city, but they would have only opened one gate in the morning. And that would have been the gate that all of the men... And the workers would go out of to go out in the field 
and work during the day. And so early in the morning would be the time, if you were going to connect with someone, to meet them there at the gate. Remember, they didn't have cell phones. There's no email. Boaz couldn't go to his computer and say, Hey, buddy, uh, I need to meet with you. He had to go and find him. And this was the place to do it. And he finds him right away. And, and I almost see this the, the same way that we saw in chapter 2, that it just so happened that Ruth went to the field of Boaz. And it just so happened that Boaz came by that day and that he met Ruth. I kind of see that here as well. It just so happens that this near kinsman comes by and that Boaz is able to meet up with him. And Boaz says to this man, hey, come aside here. Sit down, I need to talk to you. And notice that in the English, the word is friend. In the Hebrew, it's literally Mr. So-and-so, which is interesting because Boaz and this man are obviously related because they're both relatives of Naomi. This isn't a huge city. They pretty much know everybody. Plus, Boaz is a very prominent man, and he knew a lot of people. And it's interesting that the author of this story chooses to exclude the man's name because it's obvious that Boaz would have used the man's name. He didn't say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, why don't you come over here and sit down? He obviously used his name, but the author chose to exclude his name and to insert so-and-so. Now, it could be because the author was wanting to protect the man's identity because he proves himself to be kind of a selfish guy. But more than likely, the author hides the identity of the man because he wants to put more of the focus upon Boaz and not upon this man. And the Bible does that on purpose. Always putting the focus where it ought to be. And the focus of the scriptures is always upon Jesus. But here, Mr. So-and-so sits down with Boaz. And Boaz found ten elders, which would have made a, a quorum. Probably the minimum amount of leadership in the city that he needed to go forward and make this transaction official. And they sat down together. And you can picture the scene. There's people milling about. They're talking. They're at the, the main hub, the center of everything that's going on. And Boaz is wasting no time. He, he takes this thing into his hands. He's the man of the situation. He doesn't leave it to Ruth. He doesn't say, yeah, you know, Ruth, that sounds cool. But I'm really busy. And we've got harvest and I've got to thresh all of this wheat and barley. So why don't you go and, you know, find Mr. So-and-so, tell him the situation, and, you know, get it done. Let me know. He doesn't do that. Men, do not put off on your wives that which God has called you to do as the leader of your home. Do not ask your wives to do that which the Lord has called you to do. Boaz takes things into his hands, and he continues to provide for Ruth and, and to protect her and to show the character that he has, the, the man that he is. What it means to be a real man has, has absolutely been twisted in our culture and in our society. And on one hand, you, you have sort of the, the chauvinism and, and the, you know, real men, uh, you know, are cowboys and, and, and are tough and don't cry 
And then on the other hand, you, you've got the other segment of society that says men and women are really the same and, and there really isn't a such thing as, as, a, as a man, that, w- that we're all sort of the same. That, and you've got these two extremes that are twisting what it means to be a man, but the Bible declares what it means to be a man, that it means to be a person of integrity, a person of character, a provider, a protector, a leader, a person that is both sensitive and strong. And that was Boaz. And Boaz said to the close relative, literally the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, she sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother or relative Elimelech. Now we know this isn't literally their brother, otherwise they would have been obligated to perform this Leverite law. And they would have done this a long time ago. This isn't literally their brother, but it is a close relative. And he's explaining the situation. And he says, look, Naomi came back from Moab. She sold a piece of land to support themselves. It was common to do in that time. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. So Boaz is doing the right thing. He's saying, look, if you want to perform the right of the redeemer, of the kinsman, then here it is. And the man said, I will redeem it. And so here again, the, the wind is kind of let out of our sails. All of these opportunities and then the bottom falls out of them and here it is again I mean Boaz and Ruth the romance has been set this is such a wonderful story you can picture it as a movie oh no not Mr. So-and-so he's not actually going to redeem the land and take Ruth with him but apparently this this man is not aware of Ruth he's not aware of the strings that are attached to this piece of land. He's just thinking, yeah, I'll buy back the land. It'll make me look good. I won't have to bear the shame of rejecting the opportunity. I buy some land. Yeah, I have to put out some money initially, but it will come back to me. It's a good investment. I'll do it. Then Boaz said, I want you to know something. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And so Boaz had this planned out. He's a shrewd man. He's a businessman. And once again, people, I think often well-meaning, but in the church, will make it almost like if, if you're a Christian businessman, then, then, you, then you never have goals. You, you never have a plan. That you're not shrewd and wise. Well, clearly Boaz is a man of shrewdness. He made a plan here and he said, look, here's the land. Do you want to redeem it? Yeah, I want to redeem it. That's a great idea. Okay, well, here's, here's the rest of the story. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Initially, this man thought, yeah, I just buy the land. It makes me look good. Everybody in town's happy with me. I don't have to bear the shame. 
I put out a little money, but it comes back to me. But now he finds out, oh, you mean I have to marry Ruth? There's more to this story? The man's probably married. He's got children of his own. He doesn't want to have to bear a son through Ruth and then give up his rights to that son and have this son be the inheritor, inheritor of his money. He, he doesn't want to do it. He, he refuses to do it. I, I can't do this. It will ruin my family. It will ruin my inheritance. I'm not interested. And so Boaz, in his shrewdness, in his wisdom, has now placed himself as the redeemer, as the one that can redeem both Naomi and Ruth. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And so it was customary, according to Deuteronomy chapter 25, that if the close relative refused to redeem the land, to redeem the individual, to extend his hand in becoming the Leverite, if he refused that, then the woman would take one of his sandals and he would become known as the man with one sandal, the man that refused to become the Leverite, and she would spit in his face. Now, because Boaz really wants to be the Redeemer, and Ruth would really want him to be, none of those kind of harsh formalities are brought into play here. In fact, Ruth isn't even here. But he does take off his sandal. He hands it to Boaz. This would have been like signing the deed. This was... The legal transaction. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Killian's and Malan's from the hand of Naomi. And so Boaz is not wasting any time here. Naomi knew him well. As it says in verse 18 of chapter 3, that she said to Ruth, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man, Boaz, will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. She knew. She knew that Boaz would take care of business. And he does. And all the witnesses and the elders are there to, to ratify this. More, moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from, among, and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Now, again, we've talked about this, but Boaz was not obligated to do this. They are not the, the brother of Elimelech. They were not obligated to do this. He was not obligated to take Ruth as his wife, nor was he obligated to give his first son through Ruth as the perpetuator of the name of Elimelech. He was not obligated, but he did that because he's a man of character and because he's a person that gave himself for the sake of others. And see, that's really one of the sub points of this entire book is being a person who gives yourself for the sake of others. Every person in the Bible, you guys, who's a person that you want to emulate, who's a person that you learned about in Sunday school, who's a person that you think of when you think of the heroes of the Bible, 
Every one of them was a man, was a woman who gave themselves for other people. Building up to the ultimate giver of himself, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself constantly for the sake of others. And Boaz is a picture of that. And it's a lesson for us. Because we live in such a narcissistic, self-consumed society. That says, look out for number one. What's in it for me? The world revolves around me. And children are raised today to believe that. And it's just a a childhood trait that has never been disciplined out of people. This selfishness, this narcissistic perspective that it's all about me. And you know, it it might be kind of cute for a four-year-old to have a shirt that says it's all about me. You know, I kind of cringe when family, family members buy those shirts for my daughter. You know, I'm the princess. It's all about me, you know. Like, oh man, please do not give her any more fuel to believe such things. It's okay for four, five, six-year-olds maybe to kind of, you know, wear that shirt. But it's really, really ugly when 30, 40, 50-year-old adults act like it's true. But Boaz, he doesn't act that way. He gives of himself. And the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. You remember Rachel and Leah from the book of Genesis. Women who at different times both had issues of barrenness. And yet the Lord met them and blessed them both with fertility beyond anything that they could have ever imagined. In fact, they became the the mothers of the twelve tribes of Israel, at least a great majority of them. May this woman, Ruth, who's coming to your house, may she become like Rachel and Leah, fertile and blessed by the Lord, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And so it's just a a prayer of blessing upon Boaz and his family, upon Ruth. May your house be like the house of Perez. Perez is the, the father of the people that, that live there in Bethlehem. If you look back through the genealogies, Perez would have been the ancestors of many of these people that settled there in Bethlehem. Perez was the son of Tamar and Judah. Judah was the father-in-law of Tamar, and yet he never gave his son to Tamar. She kept waiting because that was appropriate. She kept waiting for Judah to give his next son to her because the son that she was married to died. And it was customary for Judah to then give his next son to Tamar, but he never did it. And then Tamar dressed up like a prostitute, took things into her own hands. And Judah hired her, impregnated her, and Perez was the offspring of that weird coming together. But in all of that, God was still at work. And so it's interesting that Perez is mentioned here again because it just sort of fits into the theme of this entire book that even though it doesn't seem like it, God is in control. May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. 
And so Boaz redeems Naomi and Ruth. He, he takes the opportunity to be the kinsman, the goel, the redeemer. And so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And so the story comes to its climax. That Boaz is now Ruth's husband. And Ruth is now Boaz's wife. And they consummated the marriage. They came together as a married couple. The way that God has instituted things. Not the way that our culture says things ought to happen. Which is, you know, take each other for a test drive. Make sure you're compatible. You got to live together for a while. No, that's, that's not at all the way that God has set it up. God has set it up that you commit yourselves in love before the witness of other people in a covenant. Because people will say, well, you know, I mean, we love each other and we're committed to each other and we're married in the eyes of God. Well, that's not biblical. Because everywhere in Scripture, when you see people who are married, they made a covenant in front of other people. And that's why even to this day that you're required to have at least two witnesses in order to be officially married. Because it's not just so much the bride and the groom making a commitment personally and privately. They are making this commitment in front of others publicly. And and that's why there's so much more at stake when people get divorced. Because it's not just a, a private decision. It's all of the family and all of the friends and everybody that was involved in this covenant. And so sex is the union. It's the consummation of that covenant. And when done outside of it, it will bring destruction. And it always does. And our culture says, you know, if it feels good, do it. And that's exactly what this culture said too. This story takes place in a time where there was no king in Israel. And everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And yet we find Boaz and Ruth faithful to God in the midst of that. And Christians today say, it's so hard to serve God. It's so hard to obey. It's so hard to do the right thing. That's true, but it's not any harder than it was for Boaz and Ruth, who were living in a time where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And yet they did what was right in the sight of God. And God blessed them for that. The Lord gave her conception. You remember she was married for 10 years to Malon, the son of Naomi, and never had any children. And every time in Scripture you see a woman who is struggling to bear a child, it's not just another story of barrenness. There's always a point to it. And you look throughout the Bible, starting with Sarah, who couldn't bear a child, couldn't bear a child, and finally God blessed her and she bore Isaac. And it starts the messianic line. And you look at all of the women in the Bible, including Hannah, who we have been studying about on Wednesdays. Hannah, a woman who God blessed and she had Samuel, who was a man that would ultimately be the one to place David in the the line, in the lineage of Christ and to put him in that that king position. God used Samuel and before that God used his mother Hannah at just the right time, at just the right place. And that's exactly what God is doing here with Ruth. And that's why it says the Lord gave her 
conception. It's God doing this. And he wants us to know that. The author wants us to be aware of that. And she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. All of these witnesses, all of these women have been watching this scene unfold. They saw Naomi and Ruth come back from Moab. They, they heard Naomi say, I left full and I came back empty. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. They've watched all of this. And they've also watched God orchestrate a miracle in their lives. And you guys, people are watching your life. They're watching to see God work in you. They're watching to see how you're going to handle things. They're watching to see how the events of your life are going to unfold. To see if God is really as real as you say he is. And know that even when it doesn't seem like God is in control, he is. And even when it seems like you went out full, but you came back empty, and that the Lord has dealt bitterly with you, and that the Lord has his hand of judgment upon you, and you don't understand why all of this madness, why all of this difficulty and struggle, it's God orchestrating his plan to bring glory to himself, to point people to him, to show people the gospel. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor Women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed, servant of God. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so here are these two random individuals. A woman from Moab. Not exactly a woman that you would expect to be a part of God's plan for the nation of Israel. A woman of Moab? A woman from what the Israelites called the place that was forsaken by God. They literally called it a wash pot, Moab. And here's a woman that God plucks out of that. All because Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons decided to go to Moab because there was a famine in the land. Meanwhile, everybody's complaining about the famine in the land. And yet it was that famine that drove them to Moab. And then it was the death of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion that brought them back so that she could meet Boaz. And all of these other details that just seem crazy, and yet God's hand is over all of them. And he's putting people where they need to be. And he's orchestrating all of these events according to his sovereignty. And he uses a Moabite woman. And he also used a prostitute. By the name of Rahab. A prostitute by the name of Rahab who just so happens to be the mother of Boaz. And all of these events. The spies going to the, the house of Rahab. And she takes them in. And they protect her. And she becomes essentially a citizen of Israel. And she marries an Israelite. And they have a son whose name is Boaz. Who just so happens to marry a Moabitess. 
and all of these crazy people are in the line in the lineage of Christ. And this same genealogy is found in Matthew chapter 1. And you look at Matthew chapter 1 and you see that there are five women named there, which was extraordinary to put women into a family tree. You didn't include the names of women. It was just the men. Five women named there. And if you look at each of these women, they are common, ordinary women who were foreigners, some who were prostitutes. And these are the women that God had chose to bring his son into the world. Amazing. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God uses people who make grave mistakes. God uses people that nobody thinks could amount to anything. God used Boaz and Ruth to father Obed, who fathered Jesse, who fathered David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Amniadab, Amniadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. God's providence through all of this. A list of of boring names comes to life, doesn't it? When you see that God has his hand upon all of it. And you know what? The, The mundane details of your life, the ordinary circumstances of your life, God is using them, all of them, for his purposes. God is using the difficulties of your life, your struggles, your hardships. He's in control, and he has a plan. He had a plan here. He had a plan here that was way beyond redeeming Ruth and Naomi. Way beyond that. Now, at that time, that's all they could think about, right? Our needs at the moment, we're going broke, we're hungry, we need to pay our bills. Boaz is the answer to that. And God blessed them. But you know what? There was way more than that going on, wasn't there? Because this woman and this man who just so happened to come together would be the grandparents, the great-grandparents of the greatest king in Israel? Did they ever think that that's what God was doing? I can guarantee you that they never had that in mind. They never had in mind that they were going to be the great-grandparents of the greatest king in Israel who would be of the line in the lineage of the Messiah. You guys, you don't know what God is doing. You have no idea what God is doing in your life. You have no idea why you're going through that struggle right now. Because it just might be that God has huge plans for you. And it's this event and it's this scenario that God is using to bring it all to pass in your life. And the awesome thing is, is that Naomi never recognized it until the very end. And God still worked in her life. She was bitter. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because God has dealt bitterly with me. To a certain extent, she was right. God had dealt bitterly with her. Her life was hard. It was a struggle. She had lost everything. But God had amazing plans. And it doesn't mean that your losses and your struggles are going to feel good. It just means that you get to be a part of what God's doing. You get to be a part of his providential plan. 
And we need to have that perspective, you guys. We need to have that perspective that God is in control even when it doesn't feel like it. That God, in this little story here, was redeeming a little family and ultimately a nation through their king, David, and ultimately a world through his son, Jesus Christ. And this whole book points to Jesus. It points to the redeeming work that he wants to do in us. That just as Boaz became a close relative of Naomi and Ruth, by choice, he laid down his rights and he gave himself for the sake of others. And I think when you read this story with any other idea than that, you lose it. And many commentators lose it because they want to make Boaz obligated to have taken Naomi and Ruth and redeemed them. And he was not obligated at all. He could have gotten out of this at any time. And so too Jesus, who clothed himself with humanity, who became a man and walked this earth and chose to take the sin of the world upon himself so that you could have everlasting life. He became your close relative, your redeemer. He that knew no sin was made to be sin with our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he redeemed you. And that's the hope we have. That's the hope we have beyond this life that is full of turmoil and strife and difficulty. That we have hope. Hope in Jesus. Just like Naomi and Ruth had hope in Boaz. I hope that you understand that. And that you continue to look to Jesus and not to your circumstances. That you continue to look to the sovereignty of God and to his hand of providence that, yes, has allowed the darkness and the difficulty to roll into your life, but it's all part of his plan, that he's working together for your good and his glory, even when it doesn't feel like it. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.